Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunstreet. Dunstreet is a progressive campaign agency that specialises in community organising. We partner with businesses, organisations, unions and social democratic parties across the globe to develop community organising strategies and train leaders to build power from within their community. And in 2022, Dunstreet will continue to work with folks that want to share their stories, inspire others, take action and organise communities for change. To find out how you can partner with Dunstreet, hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also presented to you by Morris Blackburn. Morris Blackburn's dust diseases team have accumulated more than 20 years of experience in asbestos litigation and pride themselves on ensuring that their clients not only receive the best compensation result, but that they are supported during their stressful and traumatic time. And Morris Blackburn at the moment are looking for a passionate full-time associate to join their dust diseases team in their Brisbane office. To apply, go to morrisblackburn.com.au forward slash careers. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast out every Friday that dives into the progressive campaign issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And we're heading back overseas today to Washington DC to speak to a good friend of yours and mine, Jonay Wartell, who's a democratic consultant, to talk about, uh, I guess, kind of getting ready for the midterms, um, which are in November this year, and just doing a bit of a sort of, a, I guess, like a good organiser does, an evaluation of the work that you've done so far. And in that case, I'm talking about the Democrats and the Biden administration, some pluses, delves and key takeaways, some key learnings and how we get ready for the midterms in what is going to be a huge mountain of climb for the Democratic Party uh, with races in the Senate, the House, um, in uh, governor houses and obviously uh, down ballot races in state houses as well. So that's Janae on the show today to talk about all of that. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. And if you like the show, be sure to give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify when you're done listening to today's episode or leave us a review on Apple Podcast and Podchaser. And for all the latest updates, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. Okay, let's get to today's episode. We are taping this one on a Monday morning uh, on Wurundjeri land in the heart of Melbourne, uh, Victoria, Australia. And uh, joining me on the line from Washington, D.C., which is a Sunday night, so um, champion effort uh, to come on the show on a Sunday night, is a Democratic consultant and Obama alumni and third or fourth time on the podcast now, I think. Jonah Wartel, welcome to Socially Democratic again. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. It is Sunday night there, right? It is indeed. It's around 6 p.m. Eastern, Eastern Standard Time. The sun is just setting. Lovely. <laughs> um, let's. Uh, I wanted to get you on the show today because I wanted to just sort of touch base with you about how the last 12 months has gone for the Biden administration with our all eyes on November with the, the critical midterms coming up this year. Um, and there's so much that has happened over the last 12 months and you know, there's so much that's happened in the last, you know, week. Right. Um, and probably by the time we put up this podcast, so much more will have happened. It'll be all <laughs> out of date, but um, which is such the weird kind of world that we live in today. But I kind of wanted to break it down into um, a number of subtopics, starting with uh, the January 6th inquiry mm-hmm. and, the, and, the, and the insurrection. And we talk about the transfer of power from one president to another. Maybe we have in the past underestimated the importance of that transfer of power and enabling the new administration to sort of bet in. How much do you think that the January 6th insurrection um, has been, uh, what impact has it had on the 
the Biden administration. I was going to say, has it been a distraction? But um, that's probably the wrong word. I just want to get your thoughts on how has it impacted their ability to start the work of running the White House? Well, the January 6th insurrection, the, the attacks on the U.S. Capitol have continued to really be a stain on our democracy. You know, I think the the irony of, of where it sits in terms of its uh, and the calendar um, of our history, you know, after um, the, the Biden-Harris win and then just a day after um, the Georgia runoffs, um, you see, um, you see this 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 uh, this event unfolding, and I think that as we've continued to seek uh, the truth and what happened, um, I think most Americans can see this kind of playing out on the on the world stage. And certainly, it has been um, something that the Biden administration has had to deal with as kind of happening um, amidst their struggle to um, to devise and pass comprehensive legislation that the American people have. Um, have expected and and the promises that he made on the campaign trail. Um, I think that the quest for for justice and truth still um, still you know goes on. And I think that when you look at the work of the January sixth committee, when you look at the subpoenas um, that have been issued for even members of the Trump family, um, there is a continued desire to seek the truth about what happened. Um, and I think you see even as the as the um, the desire for folks to understand what happened, I think we still do recognize that we've got to move on, that the Trump um, administration is over um, and that the Biden administration is here. And our focus should be on repairing our democracy um, and continuing to make legislation. And when you look at the what's happening with the Republican Party alongside um, the Biden administration now legislating, now passing legislation and looking um, to continue to deliver for the American people, um, I think you can see that the Republican Party is still um, th- these hearings and um, and even them censoring um, members of their own party that um, these events still really have a stranglehold on the future of their party. Um, and and we've as as a nation needed to move on to um, you know to do the work that needs to be done. So I think it's definitely something that sits. Um, alongside, um, you know, the work that the Biden administration is doing because we need to continue to seek justice there. But I think we also need to remember that we've got a country to run. Um, We've got a pandemic that's surging. We've got, um, you know, we've got Americans who are still hurting um, years into this pandemic. Um, We've got voting rights legislation. We've got all these things that we need to do. So certainly it's something that folks are aware of. But I think we've we've had to, to shift it, taking the center stage so we can talk about the issues that matter. To that point, do you, do you think that they've got that balance right? Because you kind of don't want to let these pricks off the hook, right, for what yes. happened. And certainly the way that the Republican Party have conducted themselves since then as they've slowly kind of moved from initially condemning it on the floor of Congress to now basically running Trump's lines. Right. Um, um, you don't want to – and if you were – if, if this was a – if you turned the, the, this the, on its head and it was the Democrats or de- Democrat or left-wing supporters that had stormed the capital, there's no way the Republican Party would let the Absolutely Democratic Party not. off on this one. But at the same time, to your point, yeah, you know, good governments talk about the issues that are in, impacting the community. And do you think that the, the, the Biden administration, more broadly the Democrats, have got that balance right of pursuing justice in respect to the January 6th inquiry whilst at the same time going out there and talking about issues that are most important to to voters? I think it's been a balance that's been hard to strike. I think that 
Um, you know, the work that the January 6th committee is doing, you know, we haven't reached the conclusions that we need to reach yet. And I don't think that any American would be satisfied if we just set it to the side and let, said, let's not talk about this anymore. Um, but I do think, at, to your point, we want to hear um, we want to see progress on the issues that matter. And so I do think that the administration and Congress has tried its best to balance. Um, but it is such a it is such an important issue and it is something that it is important to find truth on that it is it has been a difficult balance to strike. But I think that the administration has really uh, done its best in this regard. I get a sense that, and you sort of alluded in your remarks just before, there, there is a wedge to be driven in between the Repu- Republican Party, uh, between, the, the, I guess, what we'd call the, the establishment or the moderates um, and the, 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 the Trumpers over this particular issue and, and a wedge that can be driven and be used uh, at the ballot box come November. Do you want to sort of unpack that a bit more for our Australian viewers about what the internal divisions are right now in the Republican Party over this issue? Well, you can look at this playing out on the world stage and on the national stage day in and day out. If you even look at the the Republican National Committee's vote to censor um, Cheney and Kinziger, you see that um, they are um, really you know, still not defining themselves as the party of the future. They're still allowing those who are true tellers and true seekers in their party to be silenced. And I think that there's a reckoning there with people who say, hey, this was not something we should be proud of. This is not something our party as Republicans should be proud of. Why is this something that we are hanging our hat on? Why are we censoring and silencing um, those in our party who who have sought and have spoken out about this issue? And I think it really speaks to the influence that you know, Donald Trump still has in the Republican Party. And, you know, we can see that he's out publicly endorsing, um, you know, some some local and federal candidates. We see that he's still speaking out on the issues of the day. And I think that the reckoning and the wedge that they have to figure out um, how to um, how to um, remove in their own party is folks who say this is not a this is not a proud day in our history. We need to move on with accountability and responsible leaders who are trying to move our party forward instead of being stuck on this as something that we should be proud of and censoring members of our party who are daring to speak out on this. And so I do think that that's that's really the wedge that we see in their party is, are we going to allow Trump to define the future of this party? Are we going to allow January 6th to define the future of this party? Or are we going to seek truth and accountability here and move on. So I really think it, the, the ball is, is squarely in their court on how they want to play this, how they want to talk to and engage with their base around these issues. I'm interested in your thoughts on this, given that you were critically involved in the, in the Georgia runoff uh, campaign um, in uh, January, um, the January after the election. I got a sense that Trump and Trump's antics and behavior were a drag on the ticket for those Senate races, um, particularly in those suburban areas of, of, of Atlanta. Him continually going on at the moment about the election being rigged and that I actually won and, you know, the radical left have taken over the, our country. Does that, the more that he gets up there and talks about this sort of stuff, does that give hope for the Democrats going into this the, the midterms, um, does that turn off, you know, swing voters that maybe would traditionally have probably have voted Republican but are now starting to that probably voted for the Democrats in Georgia in those in those Senate runoffs? I mean, what are your thoughts on on uh, on on the impact that Trump is having 
for the for the party for the Republican Party going to the midterms. Well, certainly say that he didn't do his party any favors in the Georgia runoff. I think that um, while we're still measuring and I'm sure diving into the data on um, the suppressive effect that his involvement in the Georgia runoffs had, I do think without question him delegitimizing our election system and, you know, running a campaign based on lies, the big lie and fraud did not help his party, right? It did not help for people to turn out in an election that you've basically said um, was improperly run. You know, who wants to participate in that system? I do think that there is a there is a base of folks either both in Georgia and across the country who are loyal to him, who are loyal to that lie, who are doubling down on that, who are following these surrogate conspiracy theorists who are now speaking up and speaking out, um, you know, making money off of this big lie, um, using this as a as a springboard for their own uh, 15 minutes of fame. Um, there is an allegiance to. Um, to those folks and to Trump. And I do think to the degree that um, he can be used to galvanize that base of folks in the midterms, he will be. Um, I think that will hurt in a lot of these suburban districts where moderate um, voters really are rejecting this party of Trump, this influence that he still has. But I think that um, largely we're going to see that this is going to hurt his party in some key ways. This is going to depress turnout in some key ways. Um, but his influence will be felt. And I think that that is, that is for sure. I think um, on the Democratic side, that is certainly going to energize our base in ways that are important. Um, I think we are still, you know, very much responding to January 6th um, by rejecting this big lie, by rejecting that, you know, this is who we are as Americans. And so I think you'll see some energy in the Democratic base as well around that. Let's go to, I mean, that was a question I was going to ask you a little bit later on when we sort of spoke more specifically about the midterms, but I want to pick up on that now. What, what are, if you're running the Democratic campaign, you're, right. you're running, the, you're at the DNC and you're running the midterms, what are the issues that you want to organise around that would energise your base to turn them out at, uh, at, the, at the midterms? Well, I think that, you know, going into the midterms and, and here we are in the midterms already, but as we get further into the calendar year, there are a couple things that Democrats have to really be focusing our time and energy on. One is messaging our accomplishments this administration when we look at the infrastructure bill when we look at the covid relief package when we look at you know nominating the first black woman to supreme court i think we as democrats have to be stronger and more insistent and more intentional about messaging what have we done for the american people how have we recovered from these trump years um, and kept some of some of the many promises that biden made on the campaign trail um, I think we have to definitely own those successes, right? Own that narrative and not let the Republicans define us in the midterm. I think the second thing we have to recognize is that there's work still to be done because what you've, um, what we've done, um, what we did in the 2020, um, the 2020 election was we um, helped folks to believe that we were better than the four years that we've been through, um, that we could tackle COVID, that we could um, deliver relief to the American people, um, that we could improve foreign relations. And so I think we've, we have to um, let folks know both what we've done, but that there's still work to do, that COVID is not uh, in our rear yet, you know, that we still have some challenges to face in the economy. Um, inflation um, is still a challenge. And so all of the work is not done. But setting our setting our um, our marker at, at the at, at the halfway point of this administration, I think, is an important one. Um, 
And the second thing is to keep organizing. There's still voters that need to be reached, voters that need to be registered, folks who need to understand um, where we are as a nation, where this administration is taking us in the next two years. Um, and I think we need to we need to to energize folks around that. I think the same kind of coalitions and communities that turned out in record numbers, both in the um, 2020 election and in the runoffs, we've got to re-energize those base voters. We can't assume that folks will say, oh, well, the world's better than it was under Trump. We can't assume that folks will say, oh, well, you know, I turned out last year. I've got to turn out this year. We've got to go out there and work and earn those votes. And I think we've got fantastic grassroots organizations that are already doing that. Great candidates who have stepped up to run at the local and federal level who can really, with the right resources, galvanize our base. And so I think if we stick to that strategy and that formula, uh, we will have some successes in November. What would the debrief uh, be uh, following the, the 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 series of elections that were held in November last year. Um, what would what would be if you're an organizer and you're sitting around with a team after you've um, not had a great had a terrible result in Virginia, a close one in New Jersey in a, in a race that I, I I did a preview podcast in early November or maybe late October with someone. I didn't even look at New Jersey because I didn't think it would be right. a contest, and obviously in the end it, it was. If you're an organizer and you're sitting down with your team, you're doing your sort of pluses deltas and key learnings from those November for those November elections in keeping in mind what you then want to take from that uh, evaluation into the, the midterms what would be the pluses deltas and, and, and key learnings from from November last year in those elections well you know I think when you when you put these elections in historical context you'll you'll you know be reminded that you know the party um, in power in the White House does traditionally lose um, elections in the in the year, especially following um, a White House win. And so I think for, for many people, um, you know, we were a bit eyes wide open that at least in Virginia, there would be a closer race. Um, New Jersey was certainly a shocker to myself as well. Um, but I think that, you know, one of the things we learned is that we as Democrats have got to be better messengers. What do we stand for? What have we delivered on? What is our plan for the future? And I think that we allow ourselves in, to get into these partisan policy battles with Republicans, and we allow them to define us. We allow them to talk about the issues that folks care about. And, and we're over and, you know, we're over in kind of this, this, this alternative narrative universe. And we're not, we're not speaking directly to the people that we need to energize. And I think especially in Virginia, you know, um, now governor uh, or soon to be governor Yonkin, um, really did a, a great job with making the election about localized issues, um, about masks, about things, about schools, about the choice that parents had. And I think that uh, um, he spoke to a lot of the anxieties in voters, um, specifically those suburban moms, um, that they weren't going to have choices about their children's education. Um, and issues like that, localized issues, um, he was focused on, and I don't think Democrats were focused enough on those issues. Um, I think in addition, you know, we were um, very much focused, at least in a lot of the content in the media um, that I was seeing um, on making Trump uh, this, this uh, making um, Yonkin this Trump ally who was, you know, who's basically just Trump and you couldn't trust him and, um, and, 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 and making that, um, that comparison and making that link in a way that I don't think that really resonated with folks in the same way. Um, because you could kind of see 
Yonkin, yes, is this this very, very wealthy guy, um, but I don't think that really stuck. I think he was able to create a narrative that was more compelling um, to the voters that were turning out in this election than we were to paint him as Trump. Um, we allowed the narrative to be entirely nationalized, and um, I think that was a, a key strategic failing. Uh, some focus group work that done by a Democratic um, holster group, which I now can't remember the name of them. Um, you might actually remember this, but it happened maybe three or four weeks after the Virginia uh, elections um, showed that a high number of Democratic voters, uh, registered Democrats, um, were turned off from the election itself and didn't turn out to vote because they just saw the level of infighting going on in Washington and that was a, a depressed the vote. Um, I want to talk about Congress now and get your thoughts on how the Democrats have conducted themselves in this moment where they have both the White House and control of the Congress in order to get through a legislative program. Where are the successes here um, and where are some of the areas that they need to potentially improve on? Well, I think that's a perfect segue because I do think that um, when you think about um, the Democratic and Republican candidates, I think um, and compare them against the backdrop of Congress. I think you saw, you know, someone on the Democratic side that was a very seasoned politician um, who, you know, was who was perhaps closer to Washington in terms of his ties and his experience um, and also, you know, connected to the Democrats who were in power. And then you saw this kind of newcomer who was focused on localized issues. So I do think that um, to the degree uh, the dysfunction that we saw in Washington um, did carry over, you know, Virginia's right in, in our backyard. So frankly, I do think a lot of that inability for us to deliver um, on key legislative priorities and campaign promises in the early days um, of the administration certainly had an impact. Um, I think when you when you zoom out and you look at Congress, um, you look at you see a Congress that has accomplished um, that has accomplished uh, quite a few things that I believe that Democrats need to be more actively messaging when you look at the infrastructure bill and the work that we um, did to pass that. Um, that actually was also a show of uh, bipartisan support that we were able to galvanize for the passage of that bill. When you look at the COVID relief, the one point, I believe it was $1.3 or $1.9 trillion COVID relief deal that we were able to pass to bring relief to everyday Americans who were you know, struggling um, with the impact of this pandemic. Um, and when you look at key pieces of legislation like those bills, like those packages um, that we were able to deliver on, I think you'll see successes that we should be talking about, that we should be touting. Um, when you talk about the places where, um, yes, we have faltered and been stagnant and we haven't seen progress, you look at voting rights. Um, you look at the frustration that lots of folks have um, that we haven't made more progress. Um, you know, some question whether we properly pro we properly prioritize that in the beginning of the the Biden administration when there was um, when when the president did have higher approval ratings when there was um, presumably a higher level of influence um, should we have prioritized and really um, pushed Congress much more earnestly to pass legislation to um, to push for these filibuster reforms though I know that that was a very difficult. Um, path to, to garner votes for, um, but just a more aggressive um, and intentional push around voting rights um, and, and the key pieces of legislation that 
um, were part of that conversation. Uh, mo- many folks are upset about it, and um, and with good reason. I think, luckily, at the local level, many grassroots organizations um, have continued that fight in local legislatures where these sweeping bills are still being passed. You know, I think about Georgia, which is a state that I'm thinking of often. Um, and you see the state legislatures and they, how they wreaked havoc on voting rights um, in in um, in the earliest parts of their last legislative session, and so you see this fight continuing at the local level. Um, but you see that you know that a lot of folks are 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 frustrated about it, and that's one of the key challenges. Um, and I think broadly, um, you know, the the Biden Harris administration took um, took took um, took office during a time when a lot of folks felt like the influence of Trump and COVID and a lot of the ills that were um, present um, were really plaguing us. And I don't think for some folks, we really feel like we are, that is that is a thing of the past. We're still struggling with some of the um, main issues and challenges that we had um, over a year ago. And so I think for folks who are looking for silver lining, certainly there are, certainly there are accomplishments. Um, but we undoubtedly have lots of work to do to really continue to move our country forward. Can you give us an update on where we are with the voting rights le- legislation? Or maybe I should use plural because I've got a sense that there was a couple of yep. bills that might have been been drafted. Um, I understand that um, that uh, that Mansion uh, Senator Mansion from West Virginia was going to draft his own piece of legislation that he thought that he could get bipartisan support. Uh, from Republicans as well. Where are we up to with all of this legislation? Are we going to see some significant changes to voting rights before the midterms or, or yeah, actually before the midterms? I certainly hope so. <laughs> I think that um, the fight that we've, um, that has ensued um, to gain the level of support for voting right legislation um, is going to be, um, is going to continue to be a fight. And as we look down, stare down the barrel of 2022, um, I, I'm increasingly concerned, as are many, that we will not pass a piece of comprehensive legislation, um, that we will not um, be able to garner the support to amend the filibuster rules in order to get this passed. And so we are, we are certainly at a standstill. Um, and I think that as we look forward, um, we have to, as Democrats and the White House has to especially, think about what is our, what is our next play? What are um, what are the key things that we will do to advance a piece of voting rights legislation? Because there will certainly be um, a reckoning with the American people, um, and there already is um, come November, that we haven't delivered on this promise um, and that we've been too timid and that we've been, um, we've been finding other ways to invest in voting rights infrastructure and voter protection and voter education. And none of those are the kinds of comprehensive reform that we need. So um, I become incre- I'm increasingly concerned. Um, it does not uh, to date appear that we have made it, that we will make any substantial progress. At least we haven't this month. And as we go into next month, time ticks down and the American people are waiting and hoping um, and will hold us accountable. What level of concern does uh, Democratic activists have at a state level where Republican uh, state legislators are seeking to wind back voting right or electoral regulations that um, enabled votes to be counted in the presidential election in 2020? And I'm thinking of states like Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, uh, Pennsylvania, Georgia, 
um, Arizona, Nevada, where where those states are controlled by Republicans and they're seeking to uh, remove, I guess, bipartisan approaches to basic things like, um, you know, access to um, uh, uh, polling stations or, yep. or the way that the count's being conducted or recounts can be conducted or assigning of um, who are the delegates that, to go to the Electoral College, that kind of stuff. What level of concern does party activists on the ground have with the, um, the activities of the Republican Party in this space? There's a tremendous amount of concern. Um, and that is why we need Congress to pass the Freedom to Vote Act. Um, Republican legislatures at, at the local level are doing everything they can to make it harder to vote. And we know that this disproportionately impacts communities of color. Um, and it's not at all a coincidence that the kinds of ways to vote that they have targeted, whether it's mail-in ballots or um, same-day registration or, um, or you know, the windows of early voting, um, it is not a, it is not at all a, a coincidence that these are the ways that have been targeted um, that have been restricted by Republicans and these are the ways that black and brown people in this country are voting. And so there's a tremendous amount of concern that as we go into this 2022 midterm, the the legislation that's gone into effect um, and been signed into law in some places, um, many of the places that you've mentioned, um, will then restrict access, will then restrict ballots for being accessed, will then restrict ballots from being counted. Um, and you're talking about places where margins of win, margins of loss are very, very tight. I think about Georgia and I think about how, you know, uh, I think about Stacey Abrams, who's up, who's up um, who's running for a governor in her her, um, her second attempt at the, the governor's mansion. And, you know, you look at um, the debacle that was the 2018 election where votes were literally stolen. And you look at how that can play out over our entire country this year, next year, the years following, doing irreparable damage to our democracy and to the freedom to vote. And so when we think about the Freedom to Vote Act, um, this is not just about the big lie, um, though it though a lot of these um, reforms are being um, a lot of these reforms are being um, mis mis um, uh, poorly or mismessaged um, to um, to the Republican base as ways to promote voter fraud or um, or to you know help illegal people to vote. Really, this is about protecting access to the ballot, and this is about making sure that el every eligible vote voter can vote. Um, and so that's what it is at its core. And I believe that um, as Republicans continue to target um, the many ways that black and brown voters vote, um, this will have um, effects this year and um, in the future. You mentioned before the, the infrastructure bill, which has been one of the big wins for the, for the Biden administration. And it's something that I certainly, from, from, from an Australian standpoint, uh, Labor governments here in this country tend to do well at the poll, at the polling booths, when they've invested a lot of money in upgrading of infrastructure, because it's a, it creates jobs, people can physically see it happening, whether it be a brand new school or a new hospital or new freeways or new public transport or whatever it may be. This kind of investment, people walk around going, "Well, at least my government's getting done things done." Right. Um, I just want to get a sense about this infrastructure bill, how important it will be for for the Democrats at the midterms, um, yeah. and. Uh, it, it, Bring in that conversation you were saying before about messaging. I mean, how critical will it be for the Democrats to be able to go to their communities and say, hey, look, this is what we've done in, in Washington and this is it being played out in your local community right here? 
It would be absolutely critical to our message when you think about this being one of the key accomplishments of the Biden administration to date. Um, it is important that we are out there as Democrats up and down the ballot talking about its impact on um, on local on our local infrastructure. Um, when you think about how this infrastructure law will help us rebuild roads, um, bridges, um, expanding access to clean drinking water, um, expanding access to high-speed internet. You're talking about things that are impacting everyday Americans. There's not a single person in this country who does not benefit when roads and bridges um, are are strong and aren't crumbling. Um, when you think about who, who doesn't need access to clean drinking water. I mean, like, these are everyday um, kitchen table issues, as we call them. These are things people are concerned about. And when you can go to a voter and say, this is a promise that was made by our Democratic president, Congress passed it, and we were able to deliver on it, and it's changing your way of life, that's a powerful message. That's a compelling why. That's going to take a voter from a place of apathy to saying, okay, well, th- there are things that that the president ran on that, um, that he promised he would do, that he would work with Congress to get done, and he did it. Um, Mind you, this is also a bipartisan effort to get this bill passed. And so this, you know, in a time when Washington is so hyperpartisan um, or, you know, folks folks feel like it's hyperpartisan, which in a lot of ways it is, you're saying you're, you're able to point to this and say this is something that we did. And so I, um, I really believe that this is something that I hope Democrats will take to every door and every phone in America as we're um, going into the field and organizing day to day to win these elections, to win these seats in Congress, to win these statewide elections. Um, I hope we are taking this message to every single voter. And beyond that, you know, think about the creation of um, of of jobs, of good paying jobs um, and growing the economy. And I think that, you know, the economy is always on every single voter's mind constantly. And when we can point to that growth, um, that is always a good thing for our message and a good thing for our base and for America. The COVID response um, by the Biden administration when they first were elected to office, I think was um, uh, such a, it was so refreshing to see um you know, proper public policy being implemented and, uh, and an administration working with health officials. And it just was just it, such a contrast to the insanity of the Trump, the dying days of the Trump administration. I was in California last month and uh, I got a sense that there was a jadedness to voters about COVID in general, not necessarily directed at Biden, but I'd heard anecdotal stories about, um, you know, the, the sort of the, certainly in California around mask mandates particularly in schools and people were starting to turn their attention towards, you know, democratic um, leadership, whether it be at a state level or in Washington, there was just a bit of jadedness. I want to get, uh, California, I know that that doesn't represent the entire country. It's a very diverse nation, but I want to get your thoughts about how does COVID play out heading into these midterms for, for, for Biden? What, what else do they need to do to ensure that, 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 that the country moves on? Because it feel like, certainly here in Australia, I think people mentally are over it, mm-hmm. but probably deep down they know that it's not going away for, for, for some time. Right. Well, listen, we're in, we're in the third year of this pandemic. Um, you, you can't blame anybody who wants to get back to or find some new normal, um, right? When we think about the day-to-day anxiety that parents have about sending their kids to schools, the day-to-day, um, you know, conversations and decisions that CEOs are having to make about whether their employees are coming back into the office. Like, we are all ready to cross this bridge. I think that, 
you know, we have to recognize that this is unprecedented. This is a pandemic. <laughs> we haven't seen this in our modern generation. And so we have to think about the fact that the enormity of this crisis will not be solved overnight. Um, we look at all of the time that we lost in, you know, under the Trump administration when we could have been accelerating testing, when we could have been accelerating the production of this vaccine, um, when we could have been providing relief to everyday Americans. We, we lost some we lost time there. Um, and when we when we think about the, the period during which the Biden administration take, took over, again, you have to come back to the accomplishments here. When you look at the fact that he immediately accelerated um, the process of getting more tests out there, he immediately um, you know, supercharged efforts to get the vaccine out there. Now we have you know, nearly 65 percent of Americans um, vaccinated. We have now, you know, children, um, young children who can get vaccinated. When you look at the progress that we've made, yes, it seems like a small chip away of the enormity of this of this issue. Um, we saw the economic challenges beyond the health challenges. It, there's no question that the enormity of this pandemic has been a, a huge challenge for the Biden administration. But I think we have to look at what are the ways in which we can um, work as everyday Americans, as local governments, um, to ensure that we can do our part to stop this spread. When you look at the um, the, the the mask mandates that are being lifted in some of the states where we know that folks are still dying from COVID, we know that because people are at home testing, the numbers that are being reported are probably even lagging with the number of new cases. Um, while we see new variants popping up, um, we have to definitely hold the government accountable for what they are doing um, or not doing in the face of this pandemic. Um, but we also have to recognize that there's a lot of jurisdiction and authority that's been given to local governments um, to enforce mask mandates, to um, participate in, in, in key solutions that will help us put this pandemic, defeat this pandemic and put it behind us that we've struggled to create cohesive strategy around Um there's been a lot of dissent and division on how this is applied to different states, all while, again, the pandemic is still here. So I think that this is the multi-pronged approach. I think it's comprehensive action from Congress, but I think it's also us understanding what can we be doing at the localized level to ensure this is, um, this is not as much of an issue. I think it's the very first conversation in the, in the history of the last, last uh, uh, two weeks in which we've talked about something and not mentioned the, uh, the war in Ukraine. Um, but obviously we need to turn our attention to that. But I actually want to ask a question before we actually jump into the implications that the war would have. And uh, because it's so front and centre of our of the news media at the moment, completely passed me by until last night that I realised that um, Biden had actually announced his Supreme Court nomination to um, uh, to the Supreme Court. Um, and I'm going to have to, I've, I saw, I've read her name, but I don't actually know how to pronounce her first name, so I'm going to leave it to you to do that. But um, how quickly do we think that, He'll be able to, or the 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 the, uh, the Senate will be able to uh, confirm uh, her um, her um, nomination to the Supreme Court. I believe that this nomination process will move swiftly. Um, you're talking about somebody um, who is supremely qualified, no pun intended, to serve on the Supreme Court. Um, you're, you're talking about somebody who has. Um, experience as federal judge. You're talking about somebody who has two Harvard degrees. I mean, you really couldn't point to a more qualified candidate, let alone the historic nature of this of this um, of this nomination. I think where you'll see um, what you'll see in Congress is hopefully a, a less hyperpartisan fight. Um, my hope is that you'll see some 
alignment um, on the credentials of this particular candidate. I mean, she she once clerked for the justice that she's replacing, for crying out loud. Um, and so, you know, when you look at this nomination process, you know, to the degree it gets it gets politicized, which you know the last couple of of um, confirmations have been largely more political than we'd like for them to be. Um, I think you will see. Um, you will see some voting on party lines for sure, but I think that this her qualifications um, and and yeah her qualification to be um, to hold this seat um, will help to advance this process quickly. But again, we're living in a partisan partisan times, and so I will say that to the degree that we can keep partisanship um, separate from the Supreme Court justice process uh, may be a challenge. But I, I do have faith that this will move swiftly. Uh, sorry, Katanji, Katanji Brown Jackson. Is that how you pronounce her first name? Katanji. I've heard. I've heard it said. Um, I've listened to some her recordings of her saying her own name, Katanji. Katanji Brown Jackson. Um, you are certainly a far more uh, uh, optimistic person than I am. I, I have a gut feeling that the Republicans will want payback for the 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 experiences that their Supreme Court nominees went through during the Trump administration. I, I fear that this, I worry. Well, that this when, is when you nominate people who are barely qualified, there's generally some contention. Yes. I know. I mean, they were, they were shit nominations. What, you, what else did you expect? I mean, tr- truly for us, I've just nominated Amy Coney Barrett, who I don't think is like, had ever been a federal judge. <laughs> yeah. Um, and to now be debating someone who actually has the same level of credential as I believe Justice Roberts, but then actually more experience as a federal judge. Um, you know, we, we've often set the bar super high, especially for black people and black women. Um, when we set that bar of excellence, it's often much higher than everyone else's. So we shall see. Um, I, I, I would like to recant my prior statement that this will not be a partisan battle because we just, these Supreme Court nomination hearings are just a sign of the times in a lot of instances, but my hope is that her credentials will speak for her, um, even in this confirmation process. In, in previous, uh, probably actually, I, I, I correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, Janae, but I think that over the last sort of two decades, the Republican Party have used the um, the the Supreme Court appointments as a um, energizing issue for certainly parts of their base, particularly their Pentecostal religious right. Um, is there an opportunity here for for Democrats to uh, to whip up um, enthusiasm at the polls uh, in terms of wanting to ensure that we have a Democratic um, Senate and a Democratic White House? Uh, for the future to make sure that the, the, the courts, the balance of the court starts to swing back to the, to the left uh, and to protect issues like Roe v. Wade. Will that be something that will be sort of talked about in campaign strategy come, um, you know, for midterms this year? Yeah, well, I think, I believe that in the last couple of years, you have seen, to your point, a more highly politicized um, nomination process. And that's obviously not, not a great thing, right? Because our Supreme Court is not supposed to be a, a partisan football. But we've seen that with the, politis- the politicization um, of the Supreme Court nomination process, I think what it has brought to the mainstream is a conversation about the impact of the courts. And that is an important one. When you think about things like protecting Roe v. Wade, when you think about those conversations, when you think about um, how the balance of the court and the legislation that is or the, the cases that are decided and the impact that they have on our long-term freedom, 
um, over our own bodies, our freedom to attend the schools that um, we attend on just our civil, our basic civil and human rights. When you think about that impact, I think it's important for the American people to understand the um, the consequences of those choices. Um, as a president, um, the power to make those choices. Um, as a society, the impact of those choices. So I believe that one of the benefits of um, a more politicized process has been um, an understanding and an education on the impact of these courts. So while I believe that, um, or I hope that this nomination process moves expediently, I think that as we, as it gets swept up in the in the midterms narrative, I do think it's a, a galvanizing opportunity for folks to say this court decision, this court appointee matters, and we should we should ensure that. Biden is able to keep this promise to make this nomination um, a reality, um, make this this get this confirmation um, done. So I do think that um, to the degree that um, that folks are excited to see this promise kept on the um, from the Biden campaign, uh, from the Biden administration, that we will see a lot of energy from the base. Looking at the midterms um, now, what are the key battleground races to watch um, um, in the Senate, governor races, House, the ones you want to sort of throw out to uh, our Australian audience so they can sort of start to keep an eye on? Um, well, I would be remiss if I did not talk about my home state of Georgia. Um, <laughs> we, I, I keep a, a, a daily, if not by the moment, watch on what's happening with both um, Stacey Abrams' gu- gubernatorial bid as well as what's happening with um, the re-election of, of Senator Warnock. Um, both of those will be very close races. Um, they're already organizing um, on the ground, galvanizing support um, early, uh, which I'm glad to see. I think all Democrats can never start start organizing too early. Um, when you think about um, the remainder of the map, you, you look at um, what's happening in key states, um, key states like Pennsylvania. You look at um, what's happening in in Florida? Um, you you look at the Senate map as well as not just protecting the House because a lot of those key votes are going to to maintain or going to determine the balance of power going into the next Congress, um, and that's going to determine whether we can pass some of this legislation that's been stalled. You look at Nevada. Um, you you look at New Hampshire. Um, you look at these. You look at North Carolina. Um, so there, there is no shortage of races across the map that folks can be looking at from a Senate perspective. And then when you look at um, the House, you have to think about these vulnerable, um, what are continue to be vulnerable House districts. Um, when you look at the you know suburban Virginia um, and places where we had to fight to maintain um, a lot of those seats, and and those folks who are up for reelection are obviously going to be concerned about what the impact of the administration is going to have on them. Um, you look at these newly won counties in 20, these newly won districts in 2020, um, that, you know, where we were able, where Biden was able to help us, um, to galvanize additional support to win in those collar counties. Those are going to be places where folks have got to be vigilant to ensure that turnout, um, approaches, um, presidential level so that we are not seeing any, uh, backlash in terms of the electorate that Republicans are not using. This is an opportunity to make gains and take back those seats. So it will it will be it will be a battle, um, and Democrats are already starting to organize earlier than ever. So I'm I'm optimistic about our chances. 
Am I right in assuming that uh, the approach certainly from both the Senate campaign and the House campaign is for the Democrats is purely defensive? It's just holding on to what we've got or, uh, or is there an offensive approach? To, is there a pathway to try and increase uh, or maybe offset some losses that you might find in some parts of the country, but then there's some gains you can be making in other areas of the country? Uh, talk us through what the thoughts are in respect to the map. Well, I believe that your 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 question um, about was regarding whether we have have wins that we should focus on down the ballot and not just our, our federal races. Was that the question? Yeah, yeah. I think you I mean look at what's happening in in, in state houses um, all across the country. Well, one that is the epicenter of a lot of this legislation, um, this voter voter suppression legislation that's um, slashing voting rights. And so when we think about state houses where we are either outnumbered or where we have slim margins, um, we have to think about places uh, where we could pick up additional seats and use that momentum um, that the midterms um, provide us to to gain more legislative seats, because that's where a lot of this policy is being made and defended. So I think that as we go into the midterms, we can't lose focus there. We can't lose sight of those down ballot races. Um, I think you know, one of our challenges as um, a Democratic Party has been to take our eye off of these state legislative races. And so we look up two to three cycles, 10 to 20 years um, of, of um, or 10 or less than 20 years, maybe five or 10 years after mid cycle after cycle after midterm election, we see that we're losing all of these state house seats. You know, we'll, we'll all, we all know um, how challenging it was during the Obama years when we lost so many state legislatures and we're still recovering from a lot of that damage. So I would say at the state legislative level is a place where we need to continue to um, run great, strong candidates and pick up as many seats as we can. For the organisers listening to today's episode, can you talk to any sort of um, key learnings from most recent elections that will be taken into this campaign in particular um, uh, new tools, uh, new strategies, uh, new tactics that we've learned from uh, having to organize during COVID, that kind of stuff. What, 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 what are some of the key lessons that we'll, we'll see? Sorry, what will be some of the key lessons learned from the past campaigns that we'll start to see implemented in this campaign? First, first I'd say uh, organizing early. And I think because of the nature of, uh, this Congress, uh, the nature, the political climate that we're currently in, most folks never stop organizing after the 2020 election. Um, as soon as we elected Joe Biden, there was the, you know, the voting rights fights that are still going on and they rolled right into um, the midterms. And so uh, the the notion that we need to organize early has already been adopted by a lot of grassroots organizations. And I'm really happy about that. Um, a lot of candidates are, are kicking off campaigns earlier than they um, they have in the past. Um, and I'm happy to see that. I think that in addition to that, you know, we have to take all of the necessary safety precautions um, in relation to, you know, to COVID, but also try and meet as many voters face to face, even if we're standing six feet away with a mask on at their door, we've still got to go directly to the voters. Um, digital organizing is only going to do but so much as a strategy by itself. Um, it has to be layered in with person to person 
um, organizing. Um, that is how we win. That is how we energize our base. That is how we turn out record numbers of voters that we need to win. And when I look at, um, you know, even the Georgia runoffs um, in even the 2020 elections, you know, we did use um, a lot of strong digital tactics, person-to-person messaging, uh, other digital organizing tools that help us reach people at scale. We still had to meet people where they were at their doors, at their grocery stores, in their communities. So we should not use COVID and and where we are at this phase in the pandemic to forsake traditional organizing. It is still going to take us going to uh, to the voters and talking to them about the issues that matter. And then I think that, you know, the other piece of this that I know is ever evolving is making sure that we are um, delivering, that we are effective messengers, right? As we, as the list of um, accomplishments of the administration continue to uh, to increase, um, we also see some of the new, cha- new and novel challenges um, being raised. And I think we've got to be clear about what our message is for the American people in this midterm. And I know that we have so many present challenges that it's hard to nail down what is the specific message going in the midterm, but we have got to start messaging our accomplishments and making sure that the voters who need to hear it know what we've done for them, what we're working on, and what we can accomplish together. Um, and I think that those are really the key approaches that we need to be taking into this midterm. Um, meet people where they are. Talk to them about things that matter. Don't allow the narrative to be entirely nationalized. What are people caring about in their own communities? Um, did, did, did they get relief from COVID? Did they get relief from Rescue Plan? What were they able to do? Um, what are they able to do um, in the last two years that they weren't able to do um, two years prior to that? Um, meet them where they are. I want to pick up on the very first point you made, uh, which was organising early. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting t- uh, and topic and always highly debated here in Australia. And a lot of it's around campaign finances and having the ability to pay for field organisers and put them into campaigns early. But those always control the purse strings, always looking for, you know, cuts uh, and where they can make some shortcuts. And the, the one area that I think that always seems to happen is that the organisers go in too late or later what is the what is the rash explain to it to our listeners out there what is the rationale about wanting to put in organizers early what is the rationale about wanting to start earlier uh in the cycle what's the, what's what's the benefit from that well organizing is, organizing is about is about people certainly but it's also about numbers right the the earlier you start the more voters that you can talk to the more doors that you can visit again and again and again and again and it allows our organizing efforts to go deep and not be surface, um, especially in times in the times that we're in where um, it's it's harder to get people to open their doors. It's harder to reach them on the phone. If you're counting on that one call or that one door knock, um, you probably are going to be out of luck. Now, you'd be amazed at the number of people who are at home who still don't answer their door. <laughs> Record numbers of people are at home and still don't open up. So it takes a couple knocks. It takes a couple what we call passes through the universe, which is the number of times you knock on this the a targeted number of doors. And so we've got to start early because we need to have these tough conversations with voters. We're going to run into folks who are not satisfied with what they've seen over the last two years. We're going to struggle with, we're going to find people who struggle with the motivation to turn back out in the midterm elections. And if we're counting on the one time we speak to that voter, then we're going to have challenges assuming that that's going to be, that single conversation is going to be motivating. And so the depth of our organizing can only happen when we 
um, make time for the number of conversations um, across communities that we need to have. Janae, we're out of time. It's been wonderful to have you on the show uh, once again. Um, I've uh, really appreciated uh, your insight and we've covered a wide range of topics on today's uh, show. Uh, and we wish uh, you and the party the best of luck going into the midterms. I'm sure we'll have you back on the show as we get closer to uh, to November 2022, which we'll probably be here in a blink of an eye the way that the um, how time is going so quickly these days. But we sure. do appreciate your time today. Wonderful. It's great to be great to be on uh, on the podcast. And uh, thank you for the well wishes. Hey there. Thanks for listening to Socially Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And to get all the latest updates on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday.